Hello, and welcome to another edition of Interviewing the Legends, brought to you by the Publicity Works Agency, devoted to promoting musicians and authors worldwide. Call us today at 941-877-1552 to start your free publicity evaluation. Remember, we shine only when we make you shine. Please welcome the host of Interviewing the Legends, music journalist, author, and entrepreneur, Ray Shasho. a new memoir called um, Headstock to Woodstock, focusing on his long music career, including his adventures with famous famous rock outfit after 448-page book. is available now exclusively from Lee's official website, rickleetya.com. It was something I'd always wanted to do, and I actually started it more than 10 years ago, but kept stopping and starting for various reasons, Lee explains in a statement. Then the chance conversation with a friend in Los Angeles persuaded me to get it finished. Ten years after, it was led by singer-guitarist Alvin Lee and had a series of popular albums in the late 1960s and early 70s in the U.S. The band is best known for their scorching performance of I'm Going Home at the 1969 Woodstock Festival and their hit I'd Love to Change the World, which peaked at number 40 on the Billboard Hot 100 1971. Rick says some of the highlights in the book for him are, well, the early days in bands and the Mayfield, uh, his hometown area. Uh, my stories about meeting people like Sir David Frost, Muhammad Ali, The Who, Led Zeppelin, Miles Davis, and many others, and of course playing at Woodstock. Lee adds that he hopes his memoir will also be an inspiration to any inspiring young musician to keep going against all adversity to finally win, though. Well, Alvin Lee died in 2013 at age 68 from heart surgery complications. Ten years after, he has continued on, currently led by Rick and founding keyboardist Chick Churchill. He, the band is working on a new studio album that's due out later and is planning to release a deluxe version of its 2017 album, A Sting in the Tail, in March. Please welcome songwriter, producer, author, and legendary drummer of 10 years after, Rick Lee, to interviewing the legends. Hello, Rick. Hi, how are you? I, I'm doing good, man. Thanks for being so patient this morning. <laughs> That's not a problem. Uh, the, the, book, the book sounds great, man. Uh, what, what, what can you tell me about some of the stories in the book itself? Well, I won't tell you all the stories, otherwise nobody will buy the book. Um, so, uh, basically, it charts my life, as, as you, you said, from uh, Mansfield to Woodstock. Uh, I, I was born in 45, um, which was, you know, the, the war had just finished. So things with my, 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 me and my family were, they weren't overly tough, as I recall, but, but things were in short supply. I mean, we used, I used to go shopping with my mother. And uh, she 
she had a Russian book because we all the food and stuff that we wanted was Russian. So <clears throat> sometimes you you only get like a, a maybe a, a pint and a half of milk, um, very little uh, very little fresh meat in those days because they they'd not got around to uh, the farmers couldn't supply enough at the time, um, things like that. You know, so that was the the beginning of my upbringing. Uh, I started. Um, getting a hankering after the drums from my eldest brother Peter, and he he had a wind up gramophone. Um, I don't know if anybody knows what that is nowadays, but uh, you used to have to wind it up because it worked on a on a spring, which gradually um, expanded, and that sent the turntable round. Um, <clears throat> but you had I had to keep play, winding it up as the record was playing; otherwise, the record would slow down. It didn't sound too good. So uh, we he he started to buy very early vinyl, which was quite brittle in those days. You had to be very careful, otherwise you break it easily. Um, and we had uh, what do we have? We had uh, South Rampart Street Parade. Um, uh, what else? There's another one. Uh, anyway, a couple of what we used to call over here traditional jazz, but I think it would probably be New Orleans jazz in uh, in America. Um, then we had Rosemary Clooney with Green Door, um, and then uh, uh, eventually we moved on to like pop records at the time. The record was number one in U- USA and UK. It was Guy Mitchell? She wears a red feathers and a hula hula skirt. Remember that one, um, and so on. So, and we used to stand, uh, sit and tap along to it with Mum's uh, knitting needles. So um, uh, that was how really how I started. Uh, Mum then took me to get some uh, some lessons with a local drummer who really he was a he was a percussionist. He did play a bit of kit, but he was uh, he was excellent on uh, timpani and uh, xylophone and, and stuff like that. And he took me along to a rehearsal orchestra, which is where I first started reading music. Not brilliantly, but uh, that. And I learned to play. I actually learned to play timpani. And uh, later on, much later on, I, I uh, kind of taught myself uh, xylophone and vibraphone. So uh, I played in several bands locally um, and ended up in a band called the Mansfields, which then I was um, I, I was having drum lessons at that time from uh, a guy called Dave Quickmire, who was uh, the drummer with a band called the Jaybirds. And... Um, the Jaybirds were Alvin Lee, Leo Lyons, and Dave Quickmire. Well, Dave wanted to leave, and he kind of schooled me up to take over from him. And I actually I got the job with the Jaybirds. Um, and then we auditioned for a show in London. Uh, in the meantime, Alvin had invited Chick Churchill to join us on on uh, keyboards, um, but we couldn't. Uh, we we got. Sorry, we passed the audition to to um, to do the show in London, but they only wanted us as a three piece, so a Chick wasn't able to join us at that moment. However, we then ended up as a backing band for a group called the Ivy League, which were three singers um, who had a couple of top ten hits: uh, "Funny How Love Can Be" and a song called "Tossing and Turning." Um, and uh, we got Chick in as road manager and then also snuck him in on stage playing a, a few keyboard parts. So uh, so that worked well and he was then, then with us in the band. We then did an audition at the Marquee Club in London, which was uh, the proving ground of a lot of uh, 
New Talent and the Rolling Stones, for instance, were support band to Alexis Corner there, who was the sort of godfather of British blues. Um, and we went along there, did an audition, got it, played a, an interval spot the first time as a band called the, called ourselves the Blues Yard, because blues was becoming much more popular in England at that point. Um, and we... Um, we then got a residency at the Marquee. Uh, we changed our name for 10 years after, uh, and then we came to America, da di da di da um, Is there anything else you want on that, Ray? <laughs> you wrapped it up, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Like, the, the Brits are the ones who really brought blues back into the limelight because, it, you know, all these great blues artists were kind of forgotten at a time, and then guys like, you know, John Mayall, you guys with Alvin Lee, uh, Savoy Brown, you know, you guys brought it all back, which which we really appreciate, you know. Well, um, the man we thank for that is a, it was a trumpet player, a guy called Chris Barber. Uh, uh, Chris Chris Barber was was the man who brought the the black blues players into England, right? Which is how we got familiar with them. People like uh, Sonny Boyd Williamson, John Lee Hooker, um, Sonny Terry, and Brownie McGee. Chris was the man. He he, they had a <coughs> excuse me. Chris's uh, band, the Chris Barber band, had a big hit with um, a track called Petit Fleur, and it was a number one in America, I think, at that same time. And so they went on an American tour, and Chris was in Chicago and and couldn't wait to see all the all the blues players in the clubs there. And then he said uh, to his manager, we, "We've got to get these guys to England. We, we've got to get." get them working in England. And so that's where we all picked up on that. And you're right, it was John Mayle, ourselves, uh, Savoy Brown, um, Ainsley Dunbar, who was, uh, became the drummer with uh, Journey um, not a, a while after that. He play, also played with uh, Frank Zappara and the, and the Mothers. In fact, I introduced Ainsley to, um, to Frank. Uh, we were at a gig. There was a festival in Belgium. Right. And Ainsley's band were playing. It was the last night uh, they played. Uh, they were wrapping the band up. Ainsley couldn't keep it running because they were just not making any money at doing what they were doing. And uh, I was standing at back of the stage uh, watching them play. It was a, Ainsley was a fantastic drummer. And uh, Frank, I was suddenly aware of this person at the side of me and I recognised him. Of course, it was Frank Zapper. He introduced himself. I introduced myself. He said, "Hey, do you, know, do you know that drummer?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "He's really good. Could you could you introduce me?" I said, "Sure." So when Ainsley came off, he came off stage past us and stopped to say hello. And I said, um, "Can I introduce you to Frank Zappa?" And he said, "Oh, hi, good to meet you." And anyway, later um, I heard that Ainsley was on a plane to Los Angeles to join the Mothers of Invention. Uh, so that was a, an interesting uh, meeting for all of us, I think. Um, he played with Bowie. He did. He did some stuff with Bowie as well. I remember. And, uh, he, he did what? Sorry. He, he played uh, a few few things with uh, David Bowie as well. Possibly. Did... I, I'm. I wasn't aware of that, but you could well be right. I think Ainsley did a lot of um, uh, a lot of sessions and stuff. I actually first met Ainsley in a coffee bar in Denmark Street. Denmark Street was what they used to call Tin Pan Alley. It was where all the music publishers were in those days. And I was, when we were working with the Ivy League, I did a lot of uh, studio sessions in the, they had a little demo studio underneath Southern Music. 
Uh, and next door was a, a coffee bar called the Giaconda. And usually after the session, we'd pop in there either for lunch or just a, a cup of tea or whatever. And Ainsley was in there one day, um, and we sort of introduced ourselves. Um, he, he had originally played with a band from Liverpool called the Mojos. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, I saw them play in Nottingham, so maybe that was the first time I met him. But anyway, we were met in the Giaconda, and uh, I said, oh, what are you up to? He said, well, I've, I've just been to an audition. He said, but I think I've blown it. I said, why? He said, oh, I overplayed it. I, I overplayed. He said, I said, who was it with? He said, it was. it's an amazing new uh, American guitarist. He said, in fact, I think I think the guy in after me has probably got the job. I said, who was that? He said, Mitch Mitchell. And, of course, the guitar player was Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> we go back a long way. So, yeah. But their not stories are in the book. Because that was after Woodstock. Uh, no, it wasn't after Woodstock. Before Woodstock. Sorry, that is in the book. I beg your pardon. Yeah. Um, a wonderful book. Uh, thank stars. you. Yep. Great book. Uh, I was very fortunate to hang with Alvin backstage in D.C. after uh, he, he was doing a, uh, a Best of the British Blues show with uh, Eric Burden, Ansley Dunbar was there, Boz Burrell, Tim Hinckley, and Mick Moody. And yeah. I met his manager outside the club, and I brought my guitar. And he took the guitar, and, and actually Alvin played it backstage, and he signed it and everything. And I kind of hung out with him, and I was going to bring him to his hotel, because uh, I had a limo, and he was, he was dropped off in like a Ford Escort from the club. And mm-hmm. he was ready to go with me. <laughs> his girlfriend, uh, what was that? Oh, that's me. I, I hear an echo in the background. Anyway, his girlfriend wanted to go back to the bus to eat, so I didn't get the opportunity to, to drive him back to his hotel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, um, the the band you talked about, I think that was his band at the time. Right. Um, and he did a tour in conjunction with Eric, um, Eric Burden. Mm-hmm. And, and I think Ainsley was playing with Eric at the time. Yep. Because uh, I subsequently saw Ainsley and uh, Eric in London. When, uh, sorry, not in London, in a place called Buxton, which is just up the road from where I live now in Derbyshire, and uh, or as you would say, Derbyshire. Um, and uh, they they were doing, doing a gig at the uh, at the um, the Opera House there, so I, I went over to say hello to them and had a couple of drinks after the show. That's a great band. Really oh yeah. Yeah. When uh, when you guys played Woodstock, and you know, mm-hmm. one of the best songs probably from Woodstock was "I'm Going Home." It, I mean, it was so full of energy. You know, it was incredible. W- was that kind of ad libbed, or did you know you were going to go that long on it on the song? Uh, well, I was talking to somebody earlier that um, "I'm Going Home" was was first played in Sweden when we were on a tour with the, the opening act was the folks. And then, uh, the, the next act was, um, Oh, wait a minute. Okay. It's the right way around. No, I think the headline act was Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac. Okay. And, uh, we try quite often been in the habit of what we call blowing the other bands off the stage. So we, we always used to work hard and make it difficult to be followed. 
Um, and in fact, Country Joe and the Fish said that after we played with them at Fillmore East, they'd never follow us again because uh, it was impossible. We, we joined the audience. Uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears actually had us taken off a tour as well for similar reasons. We did about five dates out of a, a 10 or 15 day tour with them. And then they got another support band because they couldn't follow us. Um, but Arvin wanted to make it difficult because um, uh, Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac were were always going down an absolute storm because they finished with uh, Shake Your Money Maker. It was a real sort of crowd pleaser. So Alvin decided we needed something like that. We were finishing our show, I think, at that time with Help Me Baby, um, which is a slow, powerful blues by Sonny Boy Williamson. Right. Um, anyway, he, out of all uh, context, Alvin called a rehearsal um, before the gig on this, I think it was the second gig or maybe the third. And uh, I, it was unheard of for him to do that because um, we didn't, we didn't, we never did sound checks in those days. Um, so we, we normally wouldn't go down to this show until just before the the main band were about. Uh, sorry, before before the uh, opening band were about to finish, and then just the gear was set up. We walk on and play, and that was it. But. Um, he called this rehearsal, so we got there, and uh, he said, "I've got, I've got this new tune. Have a listen to this." And it was "I'm Going Home," but it was a lot slower than the Woodstock version. Uh, and I played it as a, what we call a shuffle, a straight shuffle. And so instead of being bat, being bat, I would be playing um and I played that actually with both hands, the, the right cymbal and the left hand on the snare drum. Both played the same thing. Um, and that was fine at that tempo. I mean, later on, I couldn't do that. I just had to play the the two and four on the snare drum, uh, you know, the, the backbeat, as it's called. Um, so that's, I mean, we didn't think it was an amazing song at the time. Um, had a few things going for it, but it, it didn't it didn't blow uh, Fleetwood Mac off the stage at all. They still went down a storm with Shake Your Money Maker. But gradually, over the years, uh, Alvin kept adding in a few quotes from other people, like Sunshine of Your Love was in there and stuff like that. Uh, sorry, not Sunshine of Your Love. Um, that was in uh, I Can't Keep From Crying. Sorry, getting mixed up now. Um, but yeah, so I'm Going Home developed um, right. with Alvin adding lots of bits and pieces in. Um, uh, whole Lot of Shaking, for instance, is what I meant to say. And also, um, what was the other thing we did? Uh, I was a big fan of Presley's, so I, th I think we did uh, um, uh, one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready. Now, oh, oh, Blue Suede Shoes was was in there, and he just kept adding little bits in there, and, and we just uh, we just followed the lead, as it were. So that's that's how it developed into what you hear at Woodstock. Yeah, that was incredible. I mean, that was you know. I think that and probably Santana's uh, tunes were probably the two best. And a lot of people say Sly and the Family Stone were very good, too, at Woodstock. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, the, I realized that something was going on when we saw the uh, – we went to the premiere of the film in Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. Right. I can't remember the name of the theater. But uh, when our bit finished – uh, and I think it was about 10, 11 minutes long at that point. Um, the, 
the whole audience in the theatre stood up and gave us a standing ovation. Wow. And I mean, that, that, that was a, an audience made up of our, our peers and also uh, people in the music business, you know, and it's very rare for, the, for, for, for the, those people to give you a standing ovation, you know. Sure. Um, so uh, uh, I, was, I was gobsmacked with that. And then, of course, when the film came out, that, that slung us onto the world stage, really. And we started playing, you know, Madison Square Garden and the Budokan in Japan and all the uh, Yaronda Haller in Frankfurt, all the big big venues. I was a huge 10 Years After fan from way back. Uh, I think Creekwood uh, Green was probably my favorite album. And then the live album, uh, my two favorite live albums was by 10 Years After and then the Uriah Heap live album. Oh, yeah, so- yeah. Both of those. And uh, it came out probably about the same time, I think. Very, very close, anyway. I couldn't say. Um, the album I like best is one that I found languishing in uh, EMI uh, vaults, was the uh, Live at the Fillmore East. Okay. Um, I, I think that's the band at its absolute best live. Um, and the interplay, I was I, when I uh, listened to it, not so long ago, I, I realized that the interplay between Alvin and me was, was quite something, which is yeah. why I'm very proud of that record. Which I, I know you guys were, but I was really shocked when Alvin passed away. I couldn't believe it. Cause, you know, yeah, me I, too, me too. Oh, man, when I met him, you know, he, he, he was such a, you know, kind of a strong guy. I never realized how tall he was, you know? Mm, yeah. And he, he looked like he was in great shape and... I was I couldn't believe it. You know, it doesn't make any sense. Well, his uh, his his weight always fluctuated. One minute he'd be a, a skinny rock god, and the next minute he wouldn't. You know, yeah. Uh, and, and he used to snack a lot. Right. Uh, um, when he lived in Spain, he used to swim every day. A chick lived near him in those days in, in Spain, and and he chick was telling me that Alvin used to swim every day. But as soon as he'd swum, he'd, he'd get out and have something to eat, and then a bit later he'd be snacking on something else, and then he snacked on something else, and it was usually, you know, sweet things, you know, uh, a lot of carbs, stuff yeah. like that. So at the, at, you know, he could he was he was overweighted a lot of the time, and then he was back to back, and then he'd work on it, get back to normal, and then he would he'd lose it again. Um, but the heart thing, I think, as well, was that his his father had had heart trouble. So it may well have been hereditary. Yeah, I didn't know that. Cause, yeah. Cause I, I heard it was kind of a minor procedure. It wasn't like a base of her. Well, I spoke to uh, Alvin's daughter about uh-huh. it, and she, she said that um, she she felt that he gave up. They they did an operation on his heart, but they weren't happy with it. They wanted to make it to make it better, to improve it. Uh but she also said at that point in time, he, he wasn't walking very easily. He was finding it difficult to climb upstairs. He was getting out of breath. Right. Uh, so I think maybe he, maybe he put on weight again. I don't honestly know. But she said it, he was struggling and that, that he, was, he was really getting fed up with the way things were. Um, and she felt that when they did the second operation, he, he, just, he, he, could, he couldn't carry on anymore, you know. That she felt that was the problem with it. Yeah, I wonder if his surgeon was uh, any good because 
you know, my dad and my brother, they've, they've had stents put in, and they, they do very well. I mean, that's kind of a common procedure now to, you know, to do things like with the heart, you know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know with Alvin. I've got a feeling it was a valve operation. Right. But I, I couldn't say. I don't know. Apparently the first operation he had was, was almost, it was like 95% successful. Right. And, and the surgeon wanted to make it 100%, you know, or at least 99 Yeah. And uh, there he had him back in, but he, he, yeah, he died on the operating table. Very sad. Very sad. Yeah. Such a great uh, fantastic musician. Uh, yes. I, two of the guys in, in the band that really, Chris Wright and Bill Graham, huh? Kind of helped you along in the early days? or? Well, Chris Wright was our manager. Right. Um, and then Bill Graham actually sent him a telegram saying that if you're ever, he'd, he'd heard the first album we did. And he said, if you're ever in America, please come and play my venue. You know, as if like we'd be in America, <laughs> just passing through in those days. Um, but that spurred Chris Wright then to 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 raise the money for us to get to America to do that. Um, and we had the William Morris Agency in America in the, uh, the for the first tour only, actually. Um, and we went out there for eight weeks, but we did about eight gigs because they didn't come up with much. Um, and uh, you know we did we did play Fillmore West on that tour, and in fact uh, Bill had decided to open Fillmore East at that same time. So when we were leave, we were going to head back home, and he said, "Well, will you stop off in New York and play Fillmore East, please? Because I'm opening that soon." So we did that as well, and uh, and then we played a week at the Scene Club as well, Steve uh, Steve Paul's Scene Club. Um, and I think all of those things helped with the uh, with the build of ten years after to come back and do more tours. Yep, and the rest is history after that, man. <laughs> well, after, after Woodstock, yeah, that's for yeah. sure. Yeah. Oh, the, the, the album that uh, uh, the new deluxe album is incredible. Um, I want to talk about that. Okay. Uh, it's. Uh, Kind of looking at my notes here. Which which of the uh, it, it's it's you know it's 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 such a kind of a new sound with, with a lot of the tracks. You know, you don't copy the traditional ten years after uh, music. There's a couple tracks that you know are reminiscent, but you guys have a totally new sound with a lot of those tracks, and I love it. Well, it's really good of you. Thank you. I um, it all came about actually. We, we have a um, a fifty fifty joint venture deal with our company in Europe, the, the company that puts out our records. Um, <clears throat> but when it came to America, the the album uh, it's just, it was a studio album from three years ago, uh, right. a, a sting in the tail, um, which uh, in America is only available on import, or the they company in Europe do have a distributor based in Nashville, but you would only really get the album if, if, if uh, somebody wanted to order um, an album in a record shop, then they would apply to the distributor and get it, you know, so th there's no real profile on it is what I'm getting at. So a very good friend of mine is a, a DJ in Philadelphia, a guy called T Morgan. 
I've known T since 67. He was the first guy in America to play our records. He'd been over to London Singers at the Marquee Club and he picked up the first album and started playing it when he got back again. Um, and I saw T, T. In fact, we play a little venue, uh, well, not that small, um, the, the, the um, Sellersville Theatre in Sellersville, which is not far from Philadelphia. It's about, a, about an hour's drive, I think. And T always comes and MCs the show for us and introduces us. And uh, we were talking after the show, and I gave him the uh, European version of, uh, of Sting in the Tail. And he contacted me a couple of days later and he said, you've got to put this album out in America. You know, people need to know about this. This is a great album. I said, well, I'm, I'm really pleased you like it. He said, yeah, but you've got to do something with it. So I said, yeah, but I don't know who to put it with. You know, there's so many companies say yes, 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 and then do nothing. So he said, well, I know some people, Deco Entertainment, that's D-E-K-O. And... Um, he said, why don't you have a chat with them? So I did, and I felt really good about the guys, and uh, they had the idea to make this deluxe version. And we've done a, an album, uh, a live album, subsequent to A String in the Tail, called Naturally Live. And uh, they said, could they have four live tracks? So that's what we did. We, I got the European company to agree to give them the four live tracks. And... Um, the uh, one of the tracks is "I'd Love to Change the World," yeah. uh, our, our live version of it. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was, the lead singer, man, he is—he's—he's he's awesome. Love his voice. Yeah, yeah. That's Mark, Marcus von Fanti. Yeah. yeah he, he, uh, I mean, I mean, he had something—he had something uh, very different to the band, which I like. Um, I think some of my favorite tracks on the album, um, Land, of the Van- uh, Land of the Vandals is, is a cool track. Um, Up in Smoke is awesome. Very, very bluesy. Yeah. Uh, incredible. You hear a lot more keyboards in a lot of the tracks, too, which I like. Well, that's because we mixed the album properly for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Love the keyboards. I mean, it, you know, really very distinctive sound of the band. Yeah, um, well, um, Marcus produced that, and he worked very hard with Chick to 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 uh, to make sure that Chick was featured in it. You know, because I, ser- seriously, in the past, it, apart from the very first album when he did some stunning guitar uh, keyboard solos in the songs, you know, um, he really. Uh, got pushed into a back seat and the band became like a guitar band. It happened also when we were with uh, Leo Lyons and Joe Gooch when we did 10 years after with them um, and, Ch- and Chick was kind of relegated to a back seat. So uh, both Marcus and myself were determined that Chick would, 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 would be you know an integral part of the band which he is. Um, and they worked hard together on the on the uh, on the keyboard parts. We wrote we wrote all the material between us. Um, basically, Marcus was the hub, and then I would go and write songs. I think we wrote about ten or twelve songs between us. Uh, not all of them made the album, of course. Um, then Colin would go and write with um, Colin Hodgkinson, that is the bass player. Would go and write with uh, with Marcus. Uh, Colin, we call him the uh, the the groove meister which is like German for groove master. Um, 
and uh, so they would work on stuff together and then uh, Chick would go and work with Marcus and then when we had the basic roughs of, of the songs we got together actually at my place and we did a couple of rehearsals to sort of change them around knock them into shape uh, get them the way we wanted them to be and then we recorded them uh, so it was a complete sort of uh, joint venture between the band, which was also a first, really. Um, and we thoroughly enjoyed it. And we we did we worked hard to work to make what we thought what we hoped would be a radio friendly album. And so far, from the feedback I'm getting from you guys that I talked to in America, that seems to be the case. So I, I hope that stays true. I saw a lot of the comments on YouTube, and they're all positive, man. And a lot of a lot of people really uh, like Chick. His keyboard, you know, like you said, he's got. They're featuring Chick more than ever, you know, like in the past. Yeah. And yeah. Alvin. <laughs> yeah. Well, we had different. I mean, I don't know how true it is, but I I believe uh, way back. With the sound guy we had for for live concerts was also a sort of personal road manager, but I believe, uh, and I don't know how true it is, that he had an instruction to not have chick too high in the mix. Right. So whether that came from management or anywhere else, I don't know. But um, certainly, at one point, there was a there was a push. This is a guitar band quote. You know. Yeah, it's a shame because what, what, what would it? They they didn't do that with Deep Purple. I mean, you still heard John Lord. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and they had phenomenal guitar players as well. Yeah, I don't know why why it would Oh, and I mean, but, even even uh, Sabbath, you know, Black yep. Sabbath. That's right, my dear friends, uh, Tony Iommi and Bill Ward and Geezer and, and Ozzy in the old days. I got actually, I got them their first gig at the Marquee Club in London. Is that right? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. They asked me to put a word in with the manager, so I did, <laughs> and they got a job. Um, and those are the good old they, days. Sorry, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Those are the good old days. Ten years after Black Sabbath, Jethro Tull. I mean, you know. <laughs> you oh yeah, go, yeah. I, I miss those. Yeah. Days. <laughs> yeah, the rock band club. Yeah, exactly. um, you don't see but, many bands. When you think about it, I mean, Sabbath didn't have keyboards at the beginning, but later in their tours in America, I remember we tour, we, we, we weren't playing the same gigs together. I think we had, I remember being in Atlanta, and I think there were three nights. We played one, they played one, and ELO played the other one. Um, but we were, Sabbath and I were staying at, and the 10 years after, sorry, we were staying at the, um, at the same hotel, and we had a lot of fun there. But, um, that they actually had a keyboard player uh, who you could hear him out front, but he wasn't on stage with them. He played in the in the wings, you know, or, or off stage at the back of the stage. I didn't but he, know that. He was he was never on stage. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Did not know that. Huh. Sabbath I is from. He's... They're from Birmingham, right? Sabbath. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Right. And uh, I think you're right. Heap was from Birmingham as well. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I wouldn't like to say. I mean, their singer Bernie now is, is obviously from. He was from. He's a Canadian. But no. um, but I, the original singer David. Uh, oh, his surname escapes me. 
But um, David actually was living near where I lived in, in Sonning on Thames on, in Berkshire uh, just before he, uh, he died. Because um, we did some gigs in, in America. I don't think we actually played on the same in the same venue, but again, a similar sort of thing. We played one night, they played another, but we were all at the same hotel, and that's when I met uh, David. Mm-hmm. Um, a very, very nice guy, but obviously a, quite a troubled man because he, uh, I believe he took his own life, which is not good. It's a shame, you know? It's a real shame. Yeah. Especially, especially the 90s rockers, you know? I mean, all those 90s bands, you know, to me, I thought the 90s, uh, guys, you know, uh, were the last bit of rock and roll bands. You know, uh-huh. After that, it, it really, there wasn't anything that resembled rock after that, but so many of them just, you know, they took their lives, like Chris Cornell, and, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's, um, it's just because you're getting old, right? Yeah. <laughs> I guess. I'm kidding you. I'm kidding. Um... <laughs> I've just thought of something and it's gone again now. Not to worry. So, what else you what else you want to know, Ray? Well, I, I'm I'm giving your album five stars, man. It's a great album. I, I like it a lot. Uh, a lot of favorites on there. Saran is it Saran Saran? That's kind of a honky yeah, tonk type track. That's, I like that, that's one of mine with Marcus actually. The the beginnings of it is. Um, um, and it's because there was a, a young lady on television in a in a cop series. It was called. Uh-huh. A, it was like the British version of um, Cagney and Lacey. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and the, one of the stars of that, I, I fell madly in love with, um, <laughs> and uh, and so I ended up writing the song about it, basically. And then uh, Marcus and I worked on it and polished it and, and got it to a, a bit sharper than it was to start with. And then, of course, the guys came in with their ideas as well. So that's uh, that's that's how that one came together. And last night of the bottle, man, that's another favorite of mine. It's kind that's, of uh, that's one of chicks that that yeah. came from chick. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's a story of um, of him and a, a girlfriend that he was madly in love with, and uh, and and then it wasn't going to work. So they they were downing a, a bottle to drown the sorrows, you know. Yeah. I, I got to ask you about the name. There's there's a, a couple of people that say uh, the 10 years after name was in honor of Elvis Presley, and there's another one saying it had something to do with the Suez crisis. Which, 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 which is right? Well, in a funny sort of way, and I didn't realize this until I was talking to another uh, chap a couple of days ago, the, the actual name in the first place, Came uh, when Chris Wright came to see us at the Marquee Club, the first gig we did, and then he decided he would manage us. He was in Manchester at the time, and he said, "Well, you get." We, I told you we were called the Blue Shard, um, <clears throat> and he said, "You got to change your name. You got to find a better name." So nobody really bothered except Leo, and Leo went out and bought the um, the TV guide here over here is called the Radio Times, or at least one of them is. Um, and he went and bought a copy of the Radio Times, and it has all the radio programs, all the TV programs in it. So he got a pin, and he went down one of the pages with his eyes shut and stopped and put the pin in, and wherever the pin stopped, he wrote that down as a potential name for the band. And the first one he came up with was Life Without Mother, 
And then the the other one was ten years after. And you're quite right. It, it was a it was a um, a documentary made about the Suez Canal, which had happened in 1956. Um, what what I don't know if you remember, but what happened was that President Nasser was the uh, boss of Egypt at the time, and the Suez Canal runs from the Mediterranean Sea through Egypt down to uh, the Red Sea and then on to the Indian Ocean. And it was a shortcut through to all the Far Eastern territories and also Australia. <clears throat> if that wasn't there, you used to spend many, many, many more days going around the, the bulge of Africa and then down and round the Cape, which was not one of the safest uh, shipping lanes either, and then on to the, to the, to the uh, Far Eastern ports and, and Australia. So... There was some argument with NASA, I can't remember what it was, but he sank a whole load of ships in the canal to prevent other ships getting through. Right. And that was what was called the Suez Crisis. So so then the diplomats and the politicians had to figure out what the hell they were going to do to get that sorted out. So that, 10 years after, in the in the TV guide, was, was referring to that documentary that was okay. looking at, at, at what had happened 10 years following um, the Suez Canal crisis. But if you think about it, 1956 was also the year that Elvis came on the scene, um, as I believe. And, and Alvin, being a big Elvis fan, of course, said, well, it was 10 years after Elvis came along, you know. Right. So there's, the, there's how the two stories mix together. So they're both right. <laughs> In a way, yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm just sitting here spoiling everybody's fantasies now. I guess. <laughs> Rick, Rick, what's going on with uh, Natural Born Swingers? Is that still a project of yours? Or? Oh wow, you've done some research. Yeah. Um, sadly, not. We 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 loved the album. We thought we'd done a good job on that. Bob uh-huh. Bob Hall, Boogie Woogie Bob, as I call him. Um, you know, we were very proud of that album. We worked hard on that. We wrote, wrote a lot of good songs. Uh, we had some really good players on it, uh, Danny Hanley and... Um, oh, God, I knew that. I've forgotten the bass player's name. Um, Scott. Scott Whitney. Uh, uh, Whitley, sorry. Um, terrific bass player. He, he played bass on a what they call a mandolin bass. I don't know if you know what that is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about the size of a mandolin or a little bit bigger, but it's a, it's a bass just with the four strings, and they sound amazing. They sound just like a, a really big double bass, you know, fantastic. Uh, anyway, so we did that, um, but we couldn't get arrested with it. You know, we, uh, we did, I think we did one, one gig in Sweden uh, based on that band, and then after that we couldn't, we couldn't get anybody interested in taking the band I, I, Quite why, I don't know. But there you go. Now, who's uh, Bob Hall? Bob Hall is probably, well, he is the finest boogie-woogie keyboard player in in Britain. Really? And Bob has actually toured America many times with, um, uh, what are they called? The the, um, British Blues Project, I think it's called. And he's had people like Colin Allen, who was a drummer with um, John Mayall at one time. Right. Um, he, uh, Long John Baldry was, was fronting the band for a while singing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Bob had lots of different sort of names in the band. And they, they did uh, several festivals in the summer over, over in America. 
um, and, and and European festivals too. And I still do gigs with Bob. Actually, he's got a uh, there's a guy called Little Jimmy Reed, mm-hmm. uh, which is not his real name, but he's a black blueser from Louisiana. Yeah. Uh, terrific guy, really nice guy. And Bob brought him over to England and uh, do the well when when you can tour. When we haven't got COVID, uh, they probably did two tours a year and went on into Europe uh, and then back to England again. And uh, and I very often sit in on some of those gigs with them. Who was uh, who was your favorite drummer growing up? I, you know, I hear a lot. I hear um, you know uh, Buddy Rich which was one of my favorite drummers, you know. Uh, he, the guy was amazing. Uh, who, who was some of your favorite drummers? Well, you, you got it in one, really. I mean, the first album I bought, I saw it in the record shop in Mansfield, a place called Sid Booth's, and uh, there was this record in the in the window, and it was called it was Burning Beat, and it was Gene Cooper and Buddy Rich. And that was the first uh, drum album I bought. Yep. Uh, and I had the... Pleasure, or well, it depends how you look at it. I had the pleasure of playing with Buddy at this uh, uh, Fillmore West, ah. uh, and and then I got to know him a bit better because uh, his um, yeah that show. Where in fact, well, I, I sat on the stage just just to as you look at uh, Buddy to the left of him, um, and we sat there with my first wife was with me and uh, Kathy Rich was there, uh, Buddy's daughter. You know, you know, I love the uh, the British. Uh, you know, uh, ringtone. It you know it reminds me of the Pink Floyd album. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all have that same ringtone. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I love it. It's cool, and of course the ambulance and the police cars are cool too. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Here's your final question, man, and I, and I get some very interesting answers from this. Uh, if you had to feel the dream's wish, you know, like the movie, to perform, collaborate with anyone from the past or present, who who would that be? Oh God, uh, you got me there. I don't know really. What <laughs> to put? Do you mean to perform on drums or do, just do play, anything? Play on, play on drums, collaborate, songwriting, anything, anything, anybody that you would you'd like to kind of perform with, I guess. Actually, I mean, it, it can't happen now. But if if I'd had the chance, I uh, I, I met um, Bill Wyman when he had his own band, the Rhythm Kings. Right. Uh, and I, 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 Bill is a hell of a nice guy. I have a lot of time for Bill, and and, and he's been very good to me in the past. When they've had a show, he always puts me on the guest list. I always go backstage and have a few wine, a glass of the wine with him. And, and it, I would love to have played with Bill actually, because I think he's a very solid bass player, you know, very musical and, and solid. Uh, so he, yes, he definitely put Bill on the list. I can't, I can't really think of anybody else at the moment, to be honest. Did, did you, uh, did you play with, uh, Hendrix? Uh, funny enough, yes. Um, the third gig they did in England was at Brighton University and we were the support band. Um, so we got to know, got to know them pretty well of that. Uh, Mitch and Noel and Jimmy they're all very nice guys I really like Jimmy he, he was a he, he came over as a real gent whenever you met him um, we then actually when we played the scene club in New York on the first tour uh, we were we were jamming uh, well we used to jam a bit anyway 
And one night, um, um, oh God, what's his name? The the guy from from uh, that plays with Edgar Winter, the guitar player. Name's gone. Sorry. Oh, uh, Rick, Rick Derringer. Thank you, Rick Derringer. Uh, turned up to play, and uh, and with him was Larry Coriel. Oh wow. The jazz guitar and and Jimi Hendrix. Uh, and they and they asked if they could jam, so we said yes. Uh, and Jimmy wanted to sit on on bass, so he he took Leo's bass and just turned it upside down and played it, you know, the wrong way up because he was he was left-handed, you know. Right. Um, and he was a fine bass player as well. I, I don't know how true it is. I understood he played a lot of the bass parts on his records. Yeah, I heard that too. Yeah, and then. Uh, uh, so Larry, Larry, so we had three guitar players. We had we had Larry Coriel, Alvin Lee, and Vic Derringer up front. Uh, Jimmy on on uh, on bass, me on drums, and Chick was on keyboard. And now uh, we did a couple of songs, and then um, I got a tap on the shoulder, and, and it was Mitch. And Mitch said, "Do you mind if I sit in?" So I said, "No, go for it." You know. Um, and so he sat in, and I sat in the audience and watched the band. Wow. Um, and then later, it all got a bit self-indulgent and a bit tedious. And it was about three in the morning, I think, because the scene club used to go basically until it was dawn. Um, and it was about three, I think. And I was starving hungry. And I was talking to one of the one of the groupies there. And uh, I, said, I said, I'm hungry. She said, oh, well, let's go have a bite to eat. So she and her friend and myself went up the road to a cafe and, and I think probably had a full English breakfast or the American equivalent of it. Uh, and then came back to the club and, and they, they were still jamming. So, <laughs> so at that point, I'm sorry to say that I went home or, you know, to the hotel. Uh, and it was, probably, it was probably about four or five in the morning by then. Wow. Um, actually, I've just thought there is one other guy I would love to have played with. It was B.B. King. B.B. King, yeah. Yeah, B.B. was a hell of a nice guy. I met him at the scene club, too. Mike, Mike Verner, now producer on the first three albums, was over in New York, and uh, he was obviously doing some work with B.B., and he brought him to the scene club and introduced me. And he was another real gent, you know. Um, uh, and then um, uh, where else? And then we played with him in Chicago when he had his, his big band with the horns and everything, you know, the brass section. Right. Uh, boy, boy, could that band swing? Oh, it was unbelievable. Um, so yeah, I, w- I would have enjoyed playing with BB. That would have been nice. I'm, um, uh, I'm friends with his daughters. <laughs> um, say, say, say again, sorry. I'm friends with his daughters, BB King's daughters. Oh uh, wow, they're so nice, very very nice, and and uh, also musicians. Uh, you know, they 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 sing sing the blues like 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 their dad, and they're yeah. great. Yeah, amazing. They're really good. Um, just nipping back to uh, to Jimi Hendrix again. We we met Jimmy. He came to the Fillmore East uh, when the it was called the British Invasion. And it was Brokel Harem were opening up. Oh, uh, sorry, not Brokel Harem. Beg your pardon. It was the Nice opening the show. Right. Family were uh, family, and then us, and uh, the Nice. Uh, Jimmy actually came to see the Nice. He wanted to see um, see um, Keith Emerson, and uh, that was the night that Roger Chapman 
through uh, a, a bottle across the stage, which almost hit Bill Graham. Wow. Uh, Bill, Bill Graham was standing there to um, just to make sure they finished on time because, you know, with three acts, you weren't allowed to run over because they had to do the changeovers. And you also had two shows a night. So, you know, there were six sets, basically, that had to be done. So Bill was standing there. And he, I don't think he was gesturing to them to come off. But and Roger, when he was singing, used to get in a trance and didn't know where he was or what he was doing. And he had this... Um, sorry, it wasn't a beer bottle. It was a mic stand. Uh-huh. He used to take the mic stand and then he would sling the microphone stand across the side of the stage. And if anybody was in the way, then that was their problem, you know. And right. it just missed, just missed Bill. And Bill said to him, when he got him off stage, he said, right, that's it, you're out of here. You, you, you'll never play my venues again. And the, he, he let them play the two more shows, the one more show, sorry, the next night. But he took their name off the marquee. Really? Uh, he, he said, if, if it's down to me, you'll be, you'll be banned from this country, hmm. you know. Uh, and Roger was obviously very apologetic because he, he didn't consider he'd done anything wrong. And I know that backstage we were we were all trying to persuade Bill not to, to be quite so fierce. Uh, Chris Wright, our manager, Alvin was there. Me, uh, Jimmy was there, trying you know trying to intercede on on part of the family, you know the nice and everybody. But Bill wouldn't hear of it, and he maintained that for many many years. And right. that really, uh, I think that sort of sank the family's chances in America for a long time. How about that? Yeah. Um, then the last last time we saw Jimmy was at um, uh, uh, it was a, a show in Germany. I can't remember exactly where, uh, but it was three days before he died. Um, and he had, uh, I think, Mitch was back with him then, uh, and he had Billy Cox on bass. Right. Um, and uh, again, he was just an absolute gent, you know. And I was just so sick when I heard he died. And in fact, I heard from, I may have been one of the first people to hear about him dying because um, I got a phone call that morning. Uh, my, my wife picked the phone up and she said, um, Rick, it's Eric, um, um, Jimmy's road manager. I said, oh, what, what the hell he wants at this time of day? Because it's quite early, you know, right. eight, eight o'clock, something in the morning. And he, he, he said, he said, you won't believe it, Rick. He was in tears, you know. He said, Rick, you're not going to believe this. He, and this was a tough Scots fella, you know, Scotsman. Right. He said, you're not going to believe this. He said, Jimmy's dead. I said, you're kidding me. What do you mean? You can't be serious. I said, you, you, you're joking with me. He said, no, no, man. Jimmy's dead. I said, so what are you doing? He said, well, the, the ambulance is coming and the police are coming. We, I, we just found him dead this morning, you know. He was fine last night. This morning, he ain't with us. And I said, well, I don't know what you want me to do, Eric. He said, well, there's nothing you can do. I said, well, if you want me to drive into town, I was about an hour, an hour and a half out of London. I I said, I'll drive in and and come and support you or whatever. And he said, no, no, don't worry, man. I'm I'm just going to have to hand it over to the the doctors and the police, you know. Um, And then I never spoke to Eric, actually, after that. just we, our paths never crossed, and I, and I don't quite know what he did after that, to be honest. Yeah. But it was, I also, it was very strange that he rang me, hmm. you know, because we, we were acquaintances. I wouldn't have said we were friends, you know. Um, 
we, we didn't socialize together a lot. You know, only saw him when we were on the, on the tour or sometimes down the, the speakeasy having a drink after the gig, you know. So, uh, yeah, strange one, that. I talked to uh, Lee Oscar, and he, he saw Jimmy because he was in, they were at, at a, uh, a jazz club, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. Eric was there, and they were, uh, Eric was, you know, he had the war band, and Lee Oscar was in war. And yeah. Jimmy got up on stage and played with him a little bit, and I think that was a few days before he died, too. Well, Eric and um, and uh, Jimmy were very good friends, yeah. Yep, yeah. In fact, I was just unpacking some books uh, a couple of days ago, because uh, I've moved into this house three years ago, and I haven't unpacked everything yet. <laughs> and... Um, I took a book out, and it's it's Eric's uh, autobiography, so I'm going to have a look through that again, because he talks a lot about Jimmy. Yep, I've got that. I, I got that book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I do. That's good. Yeah. So, what, what, were the two questions? You asked me one who I'd like to play with, or, or whatever. Well, um, you pretty much answered it, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I thought maybe it was... Yeah. Rick, so, Rick uh, uh, what's the plan after the pandemic? Are you going to uh, are you going to tour the U.S. or what are you going to do? Well, we're hoping to come over in September, October, um, but of course that's not going to happen now. Uh, did I tell you I've spoken to our, our two agents, the one in America and the one in Europe? Okay, yeah. Did I tell you? Yeah, well, both of them said twenty twenty two. It's going to be earliest we're likely to do anything. But okay. this year is quite busy for us in a way. With with the we've got the the album coming out on Deco, right? We've, we've then Chrysalis have got the rights back from uh, Warner Brothers to our Woodstock album with the six tracks to seven tracks on it. So that's due to come out June or July, I believe, and I okay. think it's going to be on be on vinyl in America. Awesome. And then October this year is the 50th anniversary of the Space in Time album. Wow. Which, which of course, has I'd Love to Change the World on it, the original studio version. Right. Uh, so um, I don't know what Christmas are planning, but I've talked to them, and they are, they're they planning to do something with it. So there'll be some uh, brouhaha around that. Well, so it's just uh, very unfortunate. We've got all that happening, and we can't talk. That's that's awesome, man. I, I, I'm really looking forward to music coming back because uh, we we need it. We all need music. Yeah, we we may be doing some uh, live stream shows and stuff in the meantime if we can get the technicalities together. So right. uh, keep your keep your eye out for those on uh, on our Facebook page and probably YouTube, uh, Instagram, or Twitter. You know, there'll, there'll be things happening on those. Rick, you got any anything else to add, or did we cover everything? I think we covered. Yeah. So, what will you you'll edit this now? Will you for use on on uh, on the is it a radio? You do. Yes, we we were going to do uh, TV, BBS TV, but it didn't work out. So uh, ah. it'll be on the radio. Oh well, that's better than nothing, isn't it? <laughs> So, is it possible that we can get a, a cut of it, or can, can oh, we yeah. hear it anyway? Yeah. Yeah. This will be this will be on uh, five different websites. It'll be oh, on. Uh, yeah. It'll be on YouTube. It'll be on uh, 
I mean, all, all the, many different avenues. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll I'll speak to Chip about that then, because he'll have all of that. Yeah. Yep, that'll be great. I've had Leo sure. on the show as well. Oh yeah. Yep. Was he interesting? He was interesting. Yeah, you know, he had his uh, new album out and his band, his new yeah. band, yes. But uh, yeah, he was good. 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 Yep. I, I, I think you're more interesting, but <laughs> Oh that's that's yeah, I bet you say I bet you say that to all the girls as well. <laughs> uh Rick, thank you so much, man, for, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh good luck with your memoir and the release of the uh deluxe edition of Sting in the Tail. And we can't wait till you're back on the road again. Hopefully uh, you know, I'm in Florida. Uh, oh, on the okay. west, uh, I'm near uh, Tampa. Yeah. So if you if you come back towards this area, I will you know I hope to see you. I'll probably do that when I'm visiting Mr. Trump. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got my That's phone. Number. You got my phone number there. Just give me a call when when you're in town, and and uh, I'll show you around. <laughs> That's really kind of you. Thank you. Sure. All right. Well, Take care. Stay safe. You too, Rick. Thank you so much, man. My pleasure. All the best. Bye. You too. Bye-bye now. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Interviewing the Legends. Brought to you by the Publicity Works Agency. Call... 941-877-1552 or visit us at publicityworksagency.com specializing in author and music artist publicity plans we shine when we make you shine tune in to interviewing the legends every tuesday at 7 p.m pacific time on bbs radio station one